I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa and Tales to Terrify. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 104. I'm your host, Nicola seaton Clark, and this week we begin with When the Harlequin Dances, by C. L. Holland. Cheryl Holland is a British writer of fantasy and science fiction and winner of Writers of the Future. Sometimes she writes poetry under an assumed name. She has a BA in English with creative writing and MA in English and likes to learn things for fun. She lives with her long-suffering partner and two cats who don't understand why they can't share her lap with a laptop. Her recent collection, A World in Clockwork and Other Stories, is available through Amazon. The story is read for us by Anthony Babington, a voice in the internet's head. He looks almost, but not quite, exactly how you expect him to. He currently resides in Houston, Texas, but hastens to add that it was not his idea. He can be found on Google+. And now, When the Harlequin Dances, by C. L. Holland. The bells rang out over the city. They sounded mournful, at odds with the carnival brightness in the streets below me. I was perched on the ledge halfway up the Izielto Tower, watching as the city folk thronged through the streets to find the best spot to see the Harlequin Parade. A better view could be had from higher up the tower, but to go any closer while the bells rang was to risk deafness. And madness, so the stories said. Master Valari had never let me go to the parade. He said it was an abomination, a leftover superstition from our great city's heathen past. That didn't stop him ringing the bells, though. That was what we did in the tower. Tended the bells, maintained the building, and rang out the clarions of the feast days and parade days. I'd never minded missing out before. The view from the tower was much better than any on the streets. In the distance, I could just make out the bright shape of the Harlequin as he came down from the palace, just as Prince Castano, the first Harlequin, had done. The city had been taken in war, and he'd fled from his enemies disguised in a motley of green and white. Every year a new Harlequin recreated his flight, and I didn't need to be close to know he'd backflip and cartwheel down the street. I doubted the prince had thrown sweets to the children, though. Alejandro, Master Valari's other apprentice, had seen the parade up close. Last year he'd crept away while our master was busy with the bells. He'd come back laden with treats, talking it up like he always did. When he'd passed me a handful of sweets, a scrap of red cloth had fallen from his pocket. He'd tried to hide it, but I saw it all the same. What's that? Nothing. He rounded on me, his different colored eyes glittering. It's nothing. If you tell anyone about it, there'll be trouble. I won't tell. But is it true, what Master Valari says? Do they really cut out the Harlequin's heart? That's what had happened to Prince Castano when his enemies caught him at the steps of the cathedral. Vicente says they used to, but that now it's just a pig's heart that they show to the crowd. Alejandro stared at me. A pig's heart, he repeated slowly. Of course it's a pig's heart, Zani. Then he shook himself. Remember what you said. 
If you tell Master Valari, I'll beat you. In the end, it was Alejandro who was beaten. Our master had found out from a friend of a friend who had seen him there. I'd heard the shouting and the blows from my bed in the cellar, and I put my fingers in my ears to drown them out. In the morning, I'd pretended not to notice my friend's bruises. Alejandro had been subdued for a while, and then bounced back with his usual cheer. The lesson didn't seem to have done any good. He'd gone missing again two days ago, before Master Valari had a chance to stop him. He was probably already in the crowd, running along with the street children he'd told me about last year. The smell of roasted meat and hot bread from the street vendors drifted up to me on the breeze, and I thought I heard the shouts of the watchers. Then the breeze shifted and left me alone again, with nothing but the bells for company. That decided me. If Alejandro was brave enough to risk a beating to see the parade, then so was I. The route was clearly mapped out on the city below me, lined with people dressed in festival brightness. It took a moment to work out the best route to intercept the Harlequin. Then I climbed back inside the coolness of the tower. Master Valari was still busy with the bells, so I abandoned caution and ran down the staircase to street level and disappeared into the maze of alleyways. I came out at my chosen spot just in time to see the Harlequin retreat around a corner. Further up the street, four men, huge and faceless in their black robes, pursued him. They loomed over the crowd, brandishing curved knives and throwing them to each other. It was like a dance. The crowd jeered and booed. The noise was louder than I'd expected, almost loud enough to drown out the bells. I turned tail and ran back into the alleys to try again. Three more times the Harlequin eluded me. The first time I almost made it, but was jostled away by older boys. All I saw was a flash of the Harlequin's pale porcelain mask as he turned a cartwheel and was gone. The second time I was showered with a handful of sweets that sparkled red and yellow in the light. The other children dived on them like pigeons on grain, and I couldn't follow the harlequin without trampling them. The third time I dropped my hands and knees and crawled between the legs of a crowd. Greasy fragments of meat and crushed sweets littered the ground and left me with sticky fingers. I straightened just in time to see the harlequin stop right in front of me. The robed men were gaining. He made a pushing-away gesture at me, which turned into a one-handed cartwheel that took him safely out of reach. One of his pursuers paused to wave his knife at me. I stuck out my tongue and crossed my eyes until he was gone. Then the harlequin came to the steps of the cathedral. The black-robed men spread out and came at him from all sides. Two of them caught his arms. Lithe as a cat, he bounced into the air, flipped, and was free of them. I found myself laughing and cheering him on, even though I knew how the story ended. Back and forth they chased him, better than any farce in the theater, cutting him off as he fainted left and right. They closed on the harlequin, herded him towards the top of the steps, and then they had him. The city folk cried out in anger as the harlequin was subdued onto the steps. One of the men raised a knife. I gasped along with the others as it flashed down. Then the men's bodies formed a screen to shield the harlequin from the crowd. When they stepped away, one of them held aloft a heart which he wrapped in red cloth and placed reverently on the harlequin's chest as he lay motionless on the steps. The angry cries grew in volume and fury. When the people of the city had seen their prince murdered, they had retaliated. It had spurred an uprising, and the city had never been taken since. The reason why we enacted the ritual of the parade every year. The black-robed men faded away toward the streets, and the crowd went after them. They wouldn't be caught, though. They never were. I turned to go. I had no desire to spend the afternoon chasing shadows, and in any case, Master Valari would miss me if I stayed. After all the fuss, it had been a bit of an anticlimax. I hadn't found Alejandro, or even managed to get any sweets. And now it was over, just like that. The Harlequin moved. He sat up with one hand clutching the red cloth to his chest. Slowly, as if tired, he staggered to his feet. The mask turned to survey the square as he swayed from side to side. There were only a handful of people left, cleaners, vendors, and the last drifting remnants of the crowd. And me. I felt a shiver up my spine as his free hand pointed at me, and he stumbled a few steps forward. I found myself coming to meet him, his weary gaze fixed on me, and I gasped as I saw he had one brown and one blue eye. Alejandro? He gave me a bow that almost sent him to his knees. I wondered when he'd had time to learn to cartwheel and backflip. Then he took his hand from his chest and I took a step backwards. 
They they really had cut out his heart. The tatters of his motley fluttered like ribbons around the ruin of his chest, all white ribs poking out of raw red flesh. He cupped the bundle of red cloth in his hand like a kitten and unwrapped the heart. I thought I could see it beating. Leandro, no! I stepped back again. Why? Leandro didn't answer. The harlequin was mute. The porcelain mask remained impassive, and I saw nothing in his eyes that belonged to my friend. He held his hands out in front of him and carefully folded up the corners of the cloth once more. Then he offered it to me. There was no way to refuse. The heart settled into my hands. The harlequin pressed them to my chest and I felt its birdwing flutter before it went still. The cloth collapsed against my fingers. The harlequin teetered backwards and toppled like a tree. Two black-robed men seemed to come from nowhere. They bowed deeply to me and then took Alejandro under the arms and dragged him up the steps, with his heels bumping against the ground like something in a play. When they were gone, I looked down at the empty fold of cloth in my hands and wondered what I was going to tell Master Valari. And that is why we don't attend historical reenactments, dear listeners. The original events usually did not end well for at least one of the parties involved, so why bother? When one is LARPing, at least one has a say in the outcome. Our second story is The Rude Mechanicals and the Highwayman by John R. Fultz. It's the third of John's stories set in the dark, surreal alternate reality known as the Urbile, previously featured in episodes 60 and 70 of Far-Fetched Fables. Each is a standalone story, so you needn't be familiar with the others before listening to this one. If you like what you hear, we definitely recommend that you seek out the prior installments. John lives in the North Bay area of California, but grew up in Kentucky. His latest novel is The Testament of Tall Eagle from Ragnarok Publications. His work includes the books of the Shaper trilogy and the short story collection The Revelations of Zhang. John's work has also appeared in Year's Best Weird Fiction, that is not dead, Shattered Shields, Lightspeed, Year One, Way of the Wizard, Cthulhu's Reign, The Book of Cthulhu Two, and other fine publications. His story is read by Seth Williams, the avatar for a three-kilometer sentient starship that is parked probably uncomfortably close to the third planet. Surprisingly, he has not yet been discovered. He is very happy that the inhabitants have discovered enough technology so that he can communicate in this limited fashion. Any communications can be directed to him via theboojum.org. And now, The Rude Mechanicals and the Highwaymen by John R. Fultz. It wasn't the seasonal gravity maelstroms or the swarms of psychic predators that kept us away from the great thoroughfare. It was the widespread tales of the highwayman known as the surgeon. Rumors of his perfidy rippled like ultrasonic waves from the greater Erbil to the outer affinities. In those distant territories, where the living and the dead mingled, where villages of despair rotted at the feet of carven mountains, we heard tales from wounded travelers and weeping merchants. He stood tall and lithe as any beatific, they said, and wielded an ancient blade faster than death. A dark cloak wrapped him like a shroud, and he wore a cruel face of sculpted bronze. To look into his burning opticals was to see your own demise, or so claimed the survivors of his attacks. One constant ran like a silver thread among the scattered tales of his infamy. Each robbery ended with a single execution. These victims, they said, were chosen specifically by the highwaymen. Others claimed that they were chosen entirely at random. This point was often debated with dreadful passion. The leader of our troop was Sala North, the master performer so famous among the Erbil's beatifics, clatterpox, and goblin kind. We were fourteen in number, ten beatific actors, and a quartet of organic apprentices. At the end of this journey... We four adolescents would receive our long-awaited beatification. We would trade our spongy flesh faces for the infinite variety of porcelain visages that were the pride of beatific society. 
Our fragile, calciferous bones would be replaced by gleaming silver skeletons, our living brains housed inside perfectly crafted skulls of that same bright metal. Some travelers said the surgeon had once been a maker of beatifics, a certified surgeon who served the potentates of Verbeel in perfect faith, until he went mad and abandoned his practice. Now he prowled the outer edges of the affinities, preying on whomever he chose, sparing some and slaying others. He was a demon, a defiler, a tale to frighten travelers. I only half believed his legend. Still, our troop took the lesser thoroughfare now, staying well away from the surgeon's hunting grounds. None of us expected to cross his path out here, not even the ones who believed he was real. The rude mechanicals had crossed a hundred affinities and performed sixty-seven shows since our outward journey began. Our return to the Urbiel would be the highlight of the year. The beatifics would welcome us in their thousands, and open their ancient marble amphitheater, the Theatre de Amsrie, to the spectacle of our stagecraft. We looked forward to such a grand reception after months of performing in muddy plazas, crowded graveyards, and crumbling ruins. The living and the not-quite-dead, the human and the inhuman, we had entertained them all. But there was no audience like a hometown crowd, an Urbiel audience. Several more affinities stood between us and the city, and yet these were the empty lands. There would be no more performances until we came to the center of the Celestial Nexus, where the Urbiel thrived and pulsed with a thousand different kinds of life. What a dreadful place, Harmona said. She tossed back her cloak and glared at the twin suns dominating the scarlet sky. The gargantuan cacti on both sides of the road sprouted millions of purple-veined blossoms. The wind blew furnace-hot and without mercy. "'You don't like the desert?' I asked. Teasing her was irresistible. She had complained about the cold for the last three days. Now there was only heat and dust, and thickets of stubborn cacti. "'Is that what this place is?' Harmona said. "'I thought we'd stumbled into hell.' We trailed at the end of the road-weary procession. Half of our number walked ahead of the six-wheeled steam carriage. It puttered along, rasping and wheezing, belching pale vapors. The rest of us walked behind the conveyance, which was piled high with barrels of oil and coal, crates of costumes and backdrops, and a few bags of dried fruit and meat for the organics. We always kept the steam carriage in our middle, ever since the time we had lost it for seven days. It ran out of fuel in the middle of an electrical storm, and we had crossed into an adjacent affinity before noticing our machine was missing. Eventually, we backtracked and found it, but the looters had stolen all of our gear. Not much of a concern for the beatifics, who required neither food nor water, but for Harmona, Bricks, Chauncey, and myself, we pitiful organics. Such provisions were essential. Another reason to anticipate beatification. On the day we relinquished our sweaty flesh for gorgeous Clarkwick bodies of metal, wire, and springs, we would leave behind our such genetic frailty. On that same great day, soon to come, we would join the ranks of Salah's journeyman actors. Our apprentice training would be complete, and we would be true rude mechanicals at last. Which hell, I said. Depending on which culture you study, there are apparently a great number of netherworlds. Harmona blinked at me as a cloud of dust blew across the road. We could barely see the black asphalt beneath the drifts of yellow sand. The lesser thoroughfare stretched on before us like a disappearing dream, winding through the arid landscape towards the next port, which lay somewhere far ahead. Our homeward journey would be so much easier and faster on the great thoroughfare, but we avoided that route only because of the highwaymen. Some might have called us cowards, but the troop was trying to protect its most vulnerable members, us the frail organics. You're far too literal, Harmona said. Pass me your canteen. Mine's dry. I gave her a drink. The steam carriage diverted its course to avoid a boulder lying in the roadway. A lucid dome containing its human brain glistened with condensation at the center of the baggage strapped to its roof. 
the vital organ, attached to the coal-fired engine by a clever array of neurofilaments, floated in a tank of bubbling nutrient fluids. The vehicle possessed enough intelligence to avoid obstacles, but not enough to sense when it was about to run out of fuel. Skip Train checked its gauges every few hours and refilled its furnace with handfuls of black anthracite. Not for the first time, I wondered what crime some poor organic had committed to deserve such a fate. Prestigious, or wealthy citizens of the Urbeel, transitioned from organic to beatific, while the poor gave up their flesh for clatterpox bodies, clumsy, cold-powered, barrel-shaped frames. Yet even the clatterpox were superior to our sentient steam carriage. Clatterpox had arms, legs, and voices. They had names and society of their own based in the rusted zone. Our faithful and nameless carriage had none of these things. Perhaps it was the brain of a madman, or an idiot. In either case, it served well as the bearer of our troops' necessities, and it had done so for longer than anyone could remember. Silent North walked at the head of our humble train, as always. She wore her traveling face, a finely sculpted mask of gold and ivory. On stage, she wore only the most delicate and intricate of porcelain faces, but such things were not made for trekking across the affinities. She carried a staff of dark metal, lighter than iron, with a head of living green flame. The glow of this flame had guided us through affinities of perpetual night, realms of everlasting fog, and lately the darkness of sudden dust storms. She was our flame-keeper, our stage-master, our foster-mother, and the ticking heart of our ensemble the original rude mechanical, and the director of all our performances. We all loved her. I loved Hermona, too, and I believe that she loved me. We mingled our bodily fluids in bouts of spontaneous intimacy whenever we could find a private moment. My love for Salah North was that of a son for his mother, or a student for his mentor. My passion for Hermona was the all-consuming heat of organic lust. We would outgrow these physical expressions of intimacy when we gained beatific status. Not for the first time, I wondered if our relationship would survive the transition. Beatifics blended their minds, not their bodies. Only disaffected organics joined flesh to flesh, as such antics were wholly forbidden in the Urbeel. But out here, on the open road, Harmona and I were free to indulge in our biological urges. We kept our mergings discreet, and our beatific friends did not chastise us for it. They had all been organic once, some centuries ago. They remembered what it was like to be young and feverish. How many more affinities? Harmona sighed. I shrugged. The troop plodded along, a trail of red dust rising in our wake. Not even Sala can answer that, I said. Keep your mind focused on the Urbeel and what waits for us there. She turned her soft blue opticals towards me and grabbed my hand. Her skin was hot and damp against mine. I wondered if her new beatific opticals, miracles of glass and wire and minuscule gears, would retain that same delicious color. Beatifics often chose a new optical color when they transitioned. The wind howled and dust raked across the road. What waits for us? She repeated my words. You're not scared, I asked. She smiled. Her broad lips were chapped and sore. Still, her beauty stunned me, even as the beads of sweat rolled from her hair and streaked her dusty forehead. Are you? Not at all, I said. Our days of hunger and thirst will be gone. We'll be as durable and fantastic as Sala, beautifics at last, the pride of the Urbeel. She spat in the dirt. You know... If we weren't actors, we wouldn't be able to afford the surgery. We'd be forced into clatterpox bodies, lumbering monstrosities, belching steam and smoke like this dull carriage. Salen North had adopted four orphan children ten years ago. She taught us the noble arts that made us performers. Only our association with her qualified us to join the Urbeel's elite class. Our conversion surgeries would be part of the troop's official recompense a reward for ten years of service and dedication to craft. Nothing was more precious in the whole wide ordeal. I nodded. Would you still love me if I were a clatterpox? 
She leaned over and kissed my cheek and then wiped the dirt from her lips. You think I love you? She said. Whatever gave you that idea? Her grin was a crooked promise. She squeezed my hand in her own. She wouldn't be able to do that when our hands were no longer spongy flesh. Brix and Chauncey walked alongside us, while Handog, Specius, and Aristotle formed the beatific rear guard. Brix and Chauncey never complained. They were as fragile as Harmona and myself, their dirty faces wrapped in scarves covering mouths and noses. Half-empty canteens hung at their belts along poniards and leather scabbards. Sometimes I thought they grew jealous of my relationship with Harmona. We had grown up together, and they loved her too. But Harmona had chosen me. I have no idea why. Pylons! The shout came from the front of the procession. Salah's right-hand man, Albertus, gazed at the horizon through a telescopic lens. He'd spotted our next port. The troop quickened its pace in expectation. None of us liked this lifeless desert affinity, not even the beatifics. They didn't feel the heat, but the atmosphere here dried out the oils that kept their interior mechanisms running smoothly. Spending much longer in this place would be dangerous for all of us. The blowing sand would clog their gears as soon as the supply of lubricating oils ran out. A flock of winged fungi rose from the distant dunes and swept towards the procession. Their bodies were writhing masses of tendrils attached to bulbous middles, and their wings reminded me of the pale, leprous bats. I counted at least two dozen of the creatures. They lurked here to prey on anyone trying to use the port. There was nothing else to lure the prey in this desolate place. We hastened towards the pair of tall black obelisks that appeared on the horizon. Salanorth stopped and stood on the side of the road like a commanding general. She pulled back the hood of her cloak, exposing her gold and ivory face. It sparkled madly in the doubling sunlight. She raised her staff high and shouted at us through the wind. Quicken your pace! she bellowed. Albertus ran to stand beside her, pulling his long rifle and aiming it at the swarm. The steam carriage kicked itself into a higher gear and we ran alongside it. Harmana would not let go of my hand, so we ran in lockstep. I looked back and saw bolts of green flame flaring from Sala's staff. The blast of Albertus's rifle shattered the wind's moaning, and a fungal beast exploded in midair. The black pylons grew taller and more distinctive before us, great monoliths that narrowed as they rose towards the sky. Their three-sided tops were flat, and runic formulas were carved into their stony sides. Ages of dust and wind had eroded the formula, but were still barely visible. For a moment, I feared their power was spent. If so, we would be stranded here in this place of dust and death. I looked back again and saw the fungi swarming about Sala. She flash-fried clumps of them with gouts of jade fire. Albertus cast away his spent rifle and drew his saber. He had chosen a grim face of iron for this journey, and his opticals gleamed red as blood in their deep sockets. It was a demon's face, a face made for killing, a mask sculpted to defy the dangers of any given affinity. On stage, Albertus was the master thespian, but long before he joined the rude mechanicals, he had been a great warrior. Now and again he told us tales of ancient wars and the horrid slaughter of battles long forgotten by the Erbil. Watching him skewer and hack at the flying beasts, I realized he was still very much a warrior. This gave me hope that Hermona and I would still be ourselves after conversion. Our love would endure the loss of our organic bodies, as Albertus's warrior spirit had endured beatification. Beyond the pair of obelisks, the dusty road stretched on through the bleak wasteland. One by one, our company ran between the pylons and disappeared from sight, shunting through the invisible vertical plane of the port. They had already arrived in the next adjacent affinity. When the steam carriage finally rolled through, nearly half our number had already passed over. Harmona and I raced toward the port, only a few more steps to go. Behind us, one of the fungus creatures attached itself to Chauncey's head, its tendrils writhing about his face and ears, seeking any entry into his brain. It was difficult for the beast to pierce a beatific's metal skull, but Chauncey's bone skull would give way far easier. 
Brix pulled his dagger and sliced at the creature. Black gore rained across Chauncey's head and shoulders, but the creature released him. It fell to the ground, squirming and bleeding. Brix and Chauncey ran towards the port while Specius stomped the wounded thing into the dirt. Skip Train fired his ancient pistol. Thunder exploded from his raised fist. Harmona and I plunged through the port. The sounds of battle ceased instantly as the fabric of the ethereal reality contorted for one brief second. No sound, no gravity, no heat or cold. Only a gulf of eternal nothingness that could smother us like tiny flames beneath a tidal wave. Then it was over, and we stood on the other side of the port. Chilling rain splattered our faces as we kept running. The steam carriage rolled on before us. The road stretched gray and shining like a serpent's back across the flat ground. A forest of shaggy willows rose on either side of the lesser thoroughfare. Rainwater dripped from hanging branches, stirring ripples in pools of blackish slime. Wonderful, Harmona said. Another swamp. She had wanted to take the great thoroughfare. We had endured one unpleasant affinity after another, and there seemed no end to them. The main road would have been far easier, but Sala had insisted we avoid the highwayman's path at all costs. I trusted her decision, even if it meant trundling through a series of hellish landscapes. The Urbio lay somewhere ahead of us, and that's all that mattered. That and Harmona's hand in mine. They came through behind us, Sala, Albertus, and Skiptrain, the last to arrive. The fungi would not follow them through the port. Such creatures abhorred the spaces between worlds. Rarely would any threat follow a caravan through the ports. The trick was surviving long enough to reach the next pair of pylons. We had done well enough so far. Did everyone make it? Sala asked. The gears inside her chest popped and creaked as the interior clog slowed to the regular speed. The opticals behind her gold and ivory face stared through the rain as she counted our numbers. She nodded. The steam carriage had stopped to wait for us. The quartet of organics gathered about the green flame atop Sala's staff, huddled like moths about a guttering gaslight. We had gone instantly from dry, scorching day to shivering in the cold, wet night. Such extremes were common when moving between affinities. Beyond the tops of the willow trees, constellations of strange stars lay hidden behind scuttling black clouds. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Set up the big tent, Sala said. We'll camp here until morning. Perhaps the rain will stop by then. I don't like the look of this place, said Albertus. He peered into the gloom of the marshland. Whatever looked back at us from the sodden wilderness must surely have trembled before his killer's face. Oh, let's take the lesser thoroughfare, Specius said. 
It'll save us from that horrible surgeon. The opticals in his aluminum face rolled with mocking expression, and his fingers wiggled in a parody of fear. The highwayman is real, Skip Train said, and it was Sala's decision. Right, said Specius. He had removed his face and wiped a splatter of fungal gore from its surface. His naked silver skull gleamed dully in the glow of his opticals. He replaced his face and trundled off to help set up the tent. An hour later, we had achieved some little comfort. The rain pattered on the canvas roof. We four set in a circle about a small fire that Chauncey had built to warm our skins. The organics formed an inner circle at the center of the greater one. The beatifics didn't need a fire's warmth. At that moment, I envied their durable bodies, so immune to fatigue, cold, and hunger. It wasn't the first time I envied them so. Harmona shivered, so I pulled her closer. Brick stirred a pot of stew over the flames. Our four bellies growled. The beatific spoke amongst themselves, deciding on the details of future performances, while the organics ate quietly in their midst. We drank rainwater cotton cups. It was cold but satisfying, perfect complement to the hot stew. I felt the food warm my guts in a pleasant way, and the warmth spread into my arms and legs. I would miss the sensation when it was no longer possible or necessary to eat. Are you looking forward to it? Harmona whispered after the meal. Her head lay against my left shoulder. You mean beatification? I asked. What else? Of course, I said. Every child of the Erbil dreams of his conversion day. True enough, she said. Her hot breath warmed my neck. But most children did not get to see the things we've seen or go to the places we've been. It doesn't matter, I said. Only you matter to me, I thought, but I didn't say it. It does, she said, pulling gently away. She stared into my opticals. Hers were full of dancing flame light and sparkling wetness. I had grown addicted to staring at those lovely opticals. They would change. We would change, as all things must. But we would change together. I know, I told her, I know. I squeezed her hands in mine. She smiled at me, and I saw sorrow in the smile. You say the kindest things. She would have kissed me then, I sensed it, but we were surrounded by beatifics. It would have been too brazen, too insulting to merge our flesh when they could see us doing it. The rain fell from the upper dark, and we had no idea what lay beyond our ring of firelight. There was no chance of sneaking off to cuddle and conjoin tonight. Are you frightened? I asked. Yes, she said, but also excited. We'll be rude mechanicals. We already are, I said. No, we're apprentices. As long as we wear this flesh, that's all we can be. She was right. That's the custom. Who are we to deny it? She nuzzled her cheek against my arm. Will you still love me when we no longer share this wonderful weakness? Yes, I said, and meant it. We lay down on one side of the fire, Bricks and Chauncey on the other. About us, the rude mechanicals sang and whispered and chattered all night, keeping their opticals on the dark swamp that engulfed us. Some practiced soliloquies or traded lines at the edge of camp. I fell asleep with Harmona in my arms. The whirling shuffle of mechanical bodies awoke us in the dead of night. The beatifics were standing about the rim of the tent. Those with weapons held them tightly in jointed fists. Salad's green flame danced at the top of her staff. What is it? Harmona said. We rubbed sleep from our soft opticals, stood and wrapped wet cloaks about ourselves. The fire was still alive, but it had burned low. The rain had stopped. A strange silence lay across the swampland. A trio of yellow moons dominated the sky, perfectly placed among the swirling constellation of stars. The marsh pools were mirrors of moonlight. What is it? I repeated Hermona's question. Bricks and Chauncey were too frightened to speak. Handog turned his opticals towards us for a moment. He wore a face of gray metal with painted crimson lips. Phantoms, he said. Wild ones. Stay in the tent. We peered beyond the shoulders of the beatifics as they stood like sentinels about the tent. 
Spectral shapes flickered between the willows. They glided slowly through the trees without leaving so much as a ripple in the pools. Harmona pressed herself against my back, clutching my shoulders. I wrapped my fingers around the hilt of my poniard, knowing that it would be useless against the ghosts. Bricks and Chauncey came close to us. I heard Chauncey's teeth chattering. These are no moaning fizzle shades, says Handog. They're dangerous. The luminous spirit of the dead men surrounded our camp. Each one resembled a body that had once carried it through the living world. They had shed those fleshy skins long ago, as Harmona, Bricks, Chauncey, and myself would soon shed our own. Yet our brains and spirits would find homes in finely sculpted metal bodies. The brains of these men had decayed long ago with the rest of their flesh. I imagined their rotting remains lying under the swamp, fodder for legions of worms and insects. Nothing left of them but moldy bones and creeping phantoms. Some of the ghosts wore antique armor, split and dented in the battles that had killed them. Some wore great bronze helms, decorated with winged dragons or devilish horns. Their skinless skull faces were like those of unmasked beatifics. But these were pitted bone hung with shards of desiccated flesh. Beatific skulls were smooth, silver, creations of perfect beauty. There was no beauty in the faces of these restless dead. "'What do you want?' Sala North asked. She raised her bright staff high, bathing the phantoms in green light. The ghosts only stared at us. They encircled the camp as the beatifics had encircled the tent. The fire suddenly died, as if someone had poured water on it. "'Leave us!' Sala shouted. The phantoms ignored her. I could not tell if they meant us harm. They might fly forward at any moment to drain our living souls, feast on our essence as the vampires of the organic age used to feast on blood. But they only stared. "'They'll fade when the sun rises,' said Albertus, setting the butt of his rifle in the mud between his feet. "'No bodiless spirit can withstand the daylight.' "'How long until dawn?' Handog asked. Albertus shrugged. "'No idea.' We just had to take the lesser thoroughfare, Species complained again. Sala called for quiet. The voices stopped. In the silence, a rumbling grew closer. A pattern of repeating thunder, hooves beating against the muddy road. It grew louder as we listened. Harmona held her breath. Her body trembled against mine. I felt the heat of her skin even through our damp clothing. In that moment of cold terror, I cherished her perfect warmth. "'It's the highwayman,' she whispered. "'The surgeon!' I thought she might weep, but she was too scared even for tears. So was I. "'But how?' said Chauncey. "'He doesn't hunt this road.' "'Apparently he does now,' said Briggs. I almost laughed at his flippancy in the face of doom. A whimper-like sound was all I could manage. My stomach tightened with fright. I wondered if the beatifics felt any fear at all. Did fear manifest from the brain or from the body? If the former were true, then the rude mechanicals could certainly know terror. They stood tall and dauntless all around us, staring at the black road ahead. If they were as frightened as we organics, none of them showed it. A rider on a dark steed rode out of the shadows. The horse was a construct of black metal, gleaming sharply in the humid air. Its opticals were slits of crimson, the light of twin flames. Steam billowed from its snout, and its jointed legs beat steel hooves against the earth, slamming the road with violent speed. Its pace decreased as the rider approached our camp. In the saddle, the surgeon sat tall and grim, a wide-brimmed hat kept his face in shadow, but his opticals gleamed silver through that patch of darkness. His cloak flapped like a pair of gargoyle wings, settling slowly about his shoulders as the horse slowed. The phantoms parted before him, and the steaming horse walked closer to us. "'We know who you are,' Sala North said. She held the flaming staff between herself and the rider. "'Then you know what I want,' said the highwayman. His voice was cold, slicing through the air like a blade. We are an acting troop, not a merchant caravan. 
said Salah. We have no wealth to give you. Go and rob someone else. The highwayman laughed, but there was no joy in it. I know who you are too, Salah North, he said, and what you are. His steed stepped closer, and Salah's light turned the black leather of his garb to glimmering shades of green. His gloved hand reached up to remove the scarf that hid his lower face. A naked silver skull gleamed at us. You are like me, he said, a victim of the potentates, a slave of the Erbil. I wondered why he wore no sculpted face. Why defy this basic custom of the beatific society? Perhaps it was part of his rebellion against the established order. We are nobody's slaves, Albertus said. He aimed his rifle, but Sala reached out and forced its barrel towards the ground. The highwayman had not yet drawn his sword that hung at his belt. I saw the long-handled pistol there, too, and another holstered on his right thigh. They were not modern Erbil guns, but relics of some distant affinity. I could not guess their power, but we had all heard the tales of his deadly blade. I say again, we have no money. Salah told him. Leave us in peace. The highwayman slid from his horse and stood facing our leader. He was close enough now that she might reach out and smite him with her weapon, or send a flash of emerald fire to scorch him. She did neither. A strange respect existed between them. Had they known each other in some previous incarnation? What had Salah not told us about this uncanny outlaw? One hand hovered above the pommel of his sword. If I draw this blade, someone here will die, said the highwayman. I'll burn you to ash, said Sala. The highwayman nodded. You might, but not before I kill at least half of your troop. These hungry phantoms obey the spell of my will. Best to meet my demands. Do so, and you can be on your way. Salah's voice broke the ensuing silence. What do you want, then? Tell us. The surgeon's opticals looked beyond the ring of beatifics. He looked at us now, the pale organic standing next to the dead fire. The organics must come with me, he said. Never, said Salah. The green fire blazed from her staff. Quicker than any of our opticals could follow, the highwayman swept his blade from its sheath, a flash of silver moonlight. A high-pitched tone rang through the night. Sala's head rolled from her shoulders and fell into the mud. The long blade slid back into its scabbard with a hiss. Sala's body fell forward, and the flame of her staff extinguished itself. Albertus raised his rifle, but a swarm of phantoms fell upon him, tearing him apart with ectoplasmic claws and teeth. In seconds, he was nothing more than a pile of broken gears, torn wires, and silver bones. One of the ghosts carried Salah's severed head to the highwayman, who tore off its gold and ivory mask. He fitted her face over his naked skull, staring at us through Salah's stolen visage. Her skull glistened like a silver orb balanced on his open palm. There was no blood only a few drops of oil. He dropped the skull into the ashes of the cook fire. Hermona leapt forward. I grabbed her arm and pulled her back. It had all happened so fast, nobody knew quite what to do about it. We all stood there, beatific and organic alike, except Hermona. Tears burned on her scarlet cheeks. Do something, she cried. There's nothing we can do, I said. It was true. The highwayman walked into the midst of our camp, wearing the face of our dead founder. The beatifics moved out of his way, each of them surrounded by a halo of specters. We were helpless, completely at his mercy. Tears filled our soft organic eyes. Come with me now, said the highwayman, and no one else will perish this night. He reached an empty hand towards us. We said nothing, moved not an inch. Why? Hermona said. Tell us why. 
She glared at him with more courage than I had ever possessed. Right then I loved her more than I ever had. To save your lives, said the surgeon, if you return to Erbil, you will die, all four of you. You're a liar, Hermona said, and a murderer. She would have torn Sala's face from him, or at least tried to. I held her tightly. You must believe me, he said. His optical swiveled toward each of our wet faces one by one. I'm here to save you. You killed Sala, Hermona shouted. The surgeon shook his head. He removed the golden ivory mask, and his silver skull regarded us intently. She was already dead, he said. His hands gestured at the helpless beatifics. All of us are. It doesn't make sense, said Chauncey. He sobbed as he met the surgeon's stare. It will, said the highwayman. Return to the Erbil and you will be destroyed, replaced by an automaton with your lifeless brain inside its silver skull. Oh, you will believe you are still alive. You will not be. Your brainless bodies will be given secretly to the potentates of Erbil. They will devour your flesh, as they have devoured all flesh that grows in the city. A machine will replace you, but it will not be you. It will only be a prison for your immortal soul, one from which you will never escape. How, I said, how can you know all of this? He was telling us the truth. Somehow I sensed it. He had no reason to lie. He could have killed us right then, or had his phantoms drag us away. But he wanted us to come willingly. He wanted us to see the truth. I know it, he said, because I used to create those machines. I robbed the living of their bodies to provide sustenance for the potentates. I transplanted thousands of brains into hollow shells, never suspecting what I was really doing. Not until... He decided not to finish that last sentence. A great sorrow hung about him like an unseen fog. I felt it as surely as I felt Hermona's warm body in my arms. You, you really are a surgeon? Hermona asked. She relaxed in my arms, and I let her go. She too sensed the truth of the highwayman's words. She felt his aura of mingled sadness and revelation. I saw it in her face. She believed him, too. Perhaps it was his subtle magic that bewitched us, as it had charmed the wild phantoms. My name is Whale, said the highwayman. I used to be called Dr. Whale. He lifted Sala's golden ivory face again, stared at it. Sala North was one of my finest creations, or so I believed. Now I understand the reality of things. I did not create her. I destroyed her, as I have destroyed so many. If his glassy opticals could shed tears, he would have been weeping then. Waves of raw emotion radiated from his slim body. Suddenly I knew why his words rang the truth. He was an empath, a sender and a receiver of emotions. Bricks and Chauncey knew it as surely as Armona and myself. Our fear had given way to sorrow while he spoke. The beatific stared at us now, awaiting our decision. They could not feel these broadcast emotions. Emotions were wholly organic things, like body heat and salty tears and the sharing of bodily fluids. I examined their well-designed faces, imagined each naked silver skull just beneath their mask. Skip Train stood closest to me. It seemed impossible that he and the rest of the rude mechanicals weren't truly alive, that the entire population of the Erbil were merely machines who believed themselves to be living beings. Yet I knew it was true. The surgeon's words and the rush of his honest emotions had convinced me, convinced us. I touched Armona's shoulder, turned her to look at me. There were no words. We wrapped our arms around each other, our lips pressed together in desperate hunger. We no longer cared that the beatifics witnessed our merging. Bricks and Chauncey embraced beside us. The surgeon said nothing. Where will you take us? I asked. A safe place, said the highwayman. 
where the potentates and the gendarmes cannot reach you. Others are already there, hundreds like you, an organic army. Why are you building an army? Harmona said. Why does anyone build an army? said the highwayman. There will come a day when we storm the Urbeel and take it from the potentates. On that day the living will reclaim the world. A new organic age will begin. You will help to build it. The irony struck me like a physical blow. A dead man with a semblance of life would lead an army of the living to reclaim a dead city that believed itself alive. What are the potentates? I said. Carnivores, said the highwayman. I took Armona by the hand. We will come if you promise not to harm any more of the rude mechanicals. The surgeon bowed from his waist and restored Sala's face to the front of his skull. I turned to Bricks and Chauncey. They looked at one another, then at Harmona and me. We've got to stick together, Bricks said. We frail organics. Harmona picked up Sala's fallen staff. The green flame reignited at its head. She looked at Skip Train, who nodded. The staff would be armamento of Sala's generosity, her kindness, and her towering talent. It carried her stubborn power inside its metal. We followed the highwayman from the tent to where the black and steaming steed awaited. He sang a brief incantation, and the wild phantoms dispersed, gliding into the shadows of the swamp. "'Can you teach me that song?' Chansey asked. "'That and many more,' said the highwayman, "'all in good time.' The first rays of a golden morning broke over the tops of the willows. The rude mechanicals gathered about their silent steam carriage. Their opticals were still fixed on us. I could not guess what they thought of us now. Did they understand? Did they admire our sacrificing ourselves to save them? Did they believe that was all we were doing? Skip Train raised his arm and waved goodbye. I waved back at him. The black horse blew a fresh cloud of steam from its nostrils as the surgeon climbed into its saddle. It carried him from the road onto a narrow causeway running between the pools of marsh water. Harmona and I walked on his right side, Bricks and Chauncey on his left. He led us deep into the green beauty of the marshland, and we followed him across several affinities, taking routes unknown to the travelers from the Urbeel. We decided to form a new acting troupe once we reached our destination. Our hard-won skills would not go to waste. We were Sala North's legacy. We would never become beatifics, but we were still actors. We would never be rude mechanicals, but we were free to be ourselves. We would entertain our fellow organics in the noble tradition to which we had pledged our lives. Sala North had taught us how to act. The surgeon would teach us how to live. The end. This is a relatively upbeat ending for a story from the Urbeel. John recently finished a novel featuring that setting and is currently seeking a publisher for it. We all have our fingers crossed. If you'd like to share your thoughts on this or any of our stories, you can leave your comments on the Triple F website, our Facebook page or on Twitter. We love hearing from our listeners and we want to know your thoughts on our content. And until we get the hang of mind reading, we'll have to make do with our online forms. Please remember that Farfetched Fables operates under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 3.0 license, which means you can download the content and share it all you like, but you can't change it and you definitely can't sell it. And be sure to give credit where credit is due. All other copyright remains that of the authors. Violators will have their optics blinded. That's me for this week. I look forward to the next one. See you then. Bye now. This presentation has been brought to you by the District of Wonders Network, dedicated to podcasting the finest genre fiction. You can learn more about the District of Wonders and their many literary productions at their website, www.districtofwonders.com. Thank you for listening.
Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.